I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now and leave a message. They will return your call at 905-529-7165. And check out the website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. You can listen to old shows there or ask a question via the listener inquiry button. We're going to talk about mortgages. Good morning, gentlemen. Good, Good morning, Scott. Scott. Mortgages, mortgages, mortgages. Yeah. Well, and it's, it, I think I saw a chart the other day that Canadians are now the most indebted of all 20 uh, major companies, uh, or, sorry, major countries yeah. around the world. We're number yeah. one. Yeah. We're number one. Awesome. It's good to be good in something. <laughs> and, We're um, good at spending money. Exactly. <laughs> good at borrowing it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, and interest rates, of course, have been creeping up. And so mortgages, which still are, for everybody, the majority have us to be able to buy a home or finance something in the long term. The mortgage is the way to go. And uh, and ultimately, the question is, you know, there's a number of issues. But one thing I wanted to start off with is how much can you afford? Mm-hmm. And, and there's two strategies or there's two formulas that are used to determine how much somebody can afford in a mortgage. There is a gross debt servicing ratio, number one. Number two is a total debt servicing ratio. And so I just want to explain the difference between these two. But when you go to get a mortgage, the lender is going to run both these calculations and whichever one comes out with the least amount of money Mm -hmm. available for you to borrow, that'll be the one that gets used. Mm -hmm. So under the gross debt servicing ratio, they're using, um, you're allowed to borrow up to 30% of your gross monthly income. Mm And, uh, and I'll run through an example in a second. And, uh, but you have to also include your uh, housing costs. Right. So under the housing costs, you would have principal and interest, uh, your property tax, a hundred percent of the heating costs, the expected mm. cost to heat it, plus 50% of any condo fees. And when they're looking at your gross monthly income, they are not going to include tips, they're not going to include bonuses and they're not going to include overtime. Mm-hmm. Uh, unless you can prove a historical amount in terms of bonuses, sometimes that might be allowed in. Uh, but again, generally they're not going to include that number. Right. Number two, which is the total debt servicing ratio, you're allowed to borrow up to 40% of your gross monthly income. And so you have to also include all of those things I mentioned before, principal interest, property tax, heat, 50% condo fees, plus any other debts you've got, the carrying costs on your credit cards, any loans that you've got, et cetera. So when I'm looking at uh, an example of that, let's take a situation. So this, in this case, um, let's say Mark and Diane, they've got gross annual family income of 66,000. Mm-hmm. So they uh, have $5,500 a month. And of that 55, that's the, of the $5,500 under the number one calculation, the gross debt servicing ratio, 30% of that is the maximum they can put towards their lending. Uh, So this case would be $1,650. So that's calculation number one. Calculation number two, which is the total debt servicing ratio. Now we're up to 40% of their monthly income. So that's, uh, of the 40% would be 2,200. But here's the issue. Mark and Diane also have two car payments, of which they're paying $575 a month. They have a student loan in which they're paying $150 a month. 
And they've also got credit card payments, which average about $175 a month. So that's a total of 900. So their, their calculation, which was $2,200, 40% of their gross income, minus the $900 brings them down to 1300 bucks a month. So calculation number one, the gross debt servicing ratio, they could spend 1650. Calculation number two, total debt service ratio, they can spend 1300. So the lender would have to go with option two, the $1,300 in terms of being able to finance it. And um, so then we get into the question of, well, what type of mortgage should I be thinking about? And really they sort of fall into, I would call three categories. You've got a fixed rate mortgage, you've got a variable rate mortgage, and then you have what we would call a combination. Mm -hmm. And uh, we'll talk about each of those briefly. So under the fixed rate mortgage, you, you have a choice between an open and a closed. Under the open, basically you can you can have an open mortgage term of six months up to one year. And the other key thing is that it's completely flexible because you can at any time break that and lock into a longer term of your choice. Mm-hmm. Okay. When you pick a fixed rate closed, and let's say you picked a one year or even a two year, you can only break that mortgage and go into a new mortgage if you go in for the same term or longer, right? right? So you have a little less flexibility, but you have the, the knowledge that you can, you can certainly um, uh, renegotiate your rate somewhere down the road. And then most of them all have the same options in terms of payment. So you can pay weekly, bi-weekly, semi-monthly or monthly. And the, the idea behind that is to try and accelerate and pay down your debt faster. And the other one, which is the key one, are prepayment options. And under prepayment options, pretty much all of them allow for a double up of your payments. So if your mortgage payment in this example was 1300, then um, you could put another $1,300 against your mortgage any, right. any month. The second one would be to increase your payments by up to 15%. So you can add another 15% on top mm-hmm. without any penalty. And the final would be uh, a lump sum of 15% annually on the anniversary or one time throughout the year. Mm-hmm. And, um, and when we're talking about today, you know, people are retiring more and more people are retiring with debt. The key has to be figuring out a strategy yeah. to get rid of that debt by the time you retire and planning for those lump sum payments, planning for those, um, additional payments. And, you know, it's almost, it's the reverse of what we think about when we're trying to accumulate money. And we always talk about pre-authorized contributions, putting money in on a regular basis, creating that habit, and it's out of sight and out of mind, and it's Mm -hmm. automated. And so one of the things I always recommend is to be able to bump up your monthly payment. So if you can add an extra 50 bucks or an extra 100 bucks, it is so much easier because it's automated. You will grow to to just think, you don't even miss it anymore. But if I said to you, you know, I need you to come up with 2,500 bucks or three grand on your anniversary yeah. to put down as a lump sum payment, yeah. you're going, well, uh, Don't I, have could, that. I could take it from my line of credit. Does that, yeah. <laughs> does that make mm-hmm. sense? <laughs> no. <laughs> so, um, automating your repayment is a fantastic strategy and don't worry about how much, just anything, any amount's going to help. Mm-hmm. And if the, the, Basic, basic amount is just what I call a roundup. If mm-hmm. your payment was 
$1,260, rounded up to 1300 yeah. you know, just a 40 bucks. And the nice thing is anytime you add anything extra onto your mortgage payment, that's going against principal. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're actually paying down the debt. Yeah. And that, that's important, you know, and, and as even more so now that interest rates are rising a bit, people were kind of ignoring their mortgages a little bit when they were like 1.99% financing. Yes. Uh, now it's like, okay, uh, three and a half, four percent I might want to start paying this thing down. Yeah. So it is becoming a bit more of an issue. And these 15% um, increases on your payment or doubling up monthly or 15% annually, they all go against the principal. Mm-hmm. Okay, so here's a test, Scott. Do you know what prime rate is right now? I don't. No. Is it 3.7? Is it 3.95? Or is it 4.2? Uh, 3.7? 3.95. Everybody's giving each other the eye We just had an increase, so of a quarter of a point. And uh, so that's across the board. Oh, yeah, that's a lot of So a lot of variable rates, the second time on mortgage, is really going to be based on a prime plus something or a prime minus something. So sorry, what was that again, Andy? 3.95. Okay. Okay. You're making notes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Something to take uh, home with. <laughs> so prime might is 3.95. <laughs> but when you think about uh, a fixed rate mortgage, for example, a five-year fixed rate mortgage today, a lender is probably going to offer you that at 3.69%, mm-hmm. all the way down to about 3.39%. So yeah. prime's 3.95. 3. Yeah. You can get a five-year fixed rate at 3.39. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that the short-term rates are actually higher higher in general than than the long term. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think a lot of people are considering that locking in. And, you know, when interest rates weren't going up, people loved the variable rate, right? Because Mm -hmm. it was tended to be even more aggressive because Mm -hmm. prime was much lower. Mm -hmm. So under the variable rate mortgage, um, basically most of them are are five-year closed. And you have a variable rate that is going to be anywhere from prime minus a half to prime minus 0.75, somewhere in that range. So you're looking at about 3.45% to 3 and a, 3.2% at the lower at the low end. So they're actually, with the discounts that are available, they are still lower mm-hmm. than the five-year rate. Mm-hmm. But, um, uh, but the issue is how quickly and how yeah. soon will, the, and how much will these rates be going up. And so just running down some of the other rates, uh, um, a cl- uh, an open rate, a fixed rate open mortgage today is prime plus three. Mm-hmm. So 6.95% for a six month open. So the, having that uh, liquidity or the yeah. complete flexibility is a very expensive option. Uh, a one year open is 7.1%. said <laughs> to wow. somebody, wow. prime plus 3.15. And, and you think about it, everybody talks percent and some, you know, being a bit of a glaze over everybody's eyes. But if you dollarize it and say, okay, for every $100,000 you owe, an extra 1% is $1,000 a year, mm-hmm. extra payment. Yeah. yeah. And pretty close to 100 bucks a month. Yeah. yeah. It's 80. $83 a month, but call it a hundred bucks a month. So if you have a $500,000 mortgage and it goes up by 1%, uh-huh. that's 5,000 a year or about yeah. 450 a month. Yeah. That's substantial. Yeah. So if you think about a, a one year open being 7.1%, you can actually get a 10 year closed for about 6.5%. Mm. So actually lower, <laughs> lower than the one year open, but lock in for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And um, so uh, the other thing that I think in terms of variables is, um, is really sort of that thought process. What do I do? Can I 
can I change this mortgage or can I move it to another location as well? So one of the key features about both fixed rate mortgages and variable rate mortgages that you want to understand is, is it portable or assumable? Mm-hmm. And portable means that if I move, I can take it with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, assumable means that when I sell my house, I can sell the mortgage with it. Right. So as long as that new person buying the house can qualify, mm-hmm. uh, that then they would be able to assume it. Mm-hmm. And there has been situations where I've seen that can be an actual competitive advantage. So let's say I had taken a, a 10-year mortgage at 6.5%. And lo and behold, four years from now, rates are above that. Mm-hmm. So now I could sell my home and offer them another seven years yeah. on that mortgage a with mortgage. a lower rate. Yeah. So it can actually become a selling feature mm. in terms of what you do with that, how you structure that mortgage. And I think the final thing just quickly on the mortgages is really the costs. And there's some additional costs. And usually your, your, um, your broker <laughs> doesn't tell you about this. Your real estate agent doesn't tell you about this. But typically you have to add about another 1.5% of your purchase price for all the soft costs. So these are going to be legal fees. Did you have to have a professional appraisal? Is there a mortgage and deed registration fees, mortgage processing fees, mortgage insurance, home and fire insurance, GST on newly constructed homes, um, connection charges for utilities, provincial tax or ta- on provincial um, regulations, land transfer tax, land survey fees, home inspection if desired, and moving expenses. Yeah. Boy, it's the black (laughs) hole. Uh, We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. 905-529-7165. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call now, 905-529-7165, and leave a message. They will return your call, and check out the website as well, Andy and Don. That's Andy and Don, all one word, dot com. There you can listen to old shows and ask a question via the listener inquiry button. We're talking about mortgages. Yes, mm. and I, I know Andy was going through all these rates, and uh, you know, certainly the five-year rate sounds pretty good compared to even the one year now and particularly closed rates but you know there's new rules that came in january of this year and they're not so new anymore because certainly it filtered through and and anybody out there trying to get a mortgage as good as those rates andy was talking about for those five-year rates you have to either add two percent to it or the qualifying the government qualifying rate whichever is higher Mm -hmm. and that's what you got to qualify for so if the rate is say three and a half percent is what you can get from your institution at three and a half percent for five years, you have to qualify for five and a half or whatever their rate is. And I believe their rate currently is 5.34. So you'd actually have to qualify for the five and a half rate. And that makes a big difference. So just as an example, let's say you're getting a $400,000 home and the rate, your best rate you could get was 3.44. Your payment would be $1,985 a month. The one you have to qualify for would be 5.44 and the payment on that is $2,427 a month. So a significant difference, almost $500 a month difference. And really what it means- If you were getting that, you'd go buy more house. Oh, that's actually what's going on, Scott. Yeah. You're absolutely right. People are buying less house because they can't afford it. And uh, it's it's you know it's probably a good thing, actually, yeah. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day. But your income before to qualify would have been 70000 a year. Now you have to be making 85000 even though you would have qualified. So the payment actually, you can actually still qualify because you got a decent rate of 3.44, but you have to qualify for that higher rate. So it is a definitely go and shop, but at the end of the day, you still have to qualify for this extra high rates, about 2% better. 
Uh, we were talking earlier on in the week about this. Um, the fact that interest rates are going up and the Bank of Canada president says that they are, mm-hmm. uh, is it just a matter of time before we rethink all of these mm-hmm. stress tests and perhaps are they needed anymore? And that's a great point. And I know we, when we talked, it's, it's, there's been nothing said about it, but it makes sense. So if they feel that the rates have peaked, mm-hmm. then do we really need mother and father government to make sure that we don't overextend ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that's really what they're doing. They're trying to protect them, the, the homeowner, the, pur- the purchaser, so they don't end up saying, oh boy, we can't afford this, and they throw the keys at the bank to get me out of this. Mm-hmm. And they're also trying to help out the banks and the people lending, because they don't want to, they're not there to own ho- properties. They don't want to foreclose on anybody. No, we don't want to have a crisis no. like we saw in 2008. Exactly, they yeah. don't want this. So it's, it's a, it was a great idea, but there is a point where it outlives its usefulness and that would be who knows when. Yeah. And maybe they'll just drop that by say from 2% to 1.5%, right. and then maybe to 1%. Right. So it is a, it's interesting, um, the exception to these rules. I wonder if they'll ever drop it fully. Yeah, we'll right, see. Will right. they keep a, p- a point in there just to, you know, well, make sure we don't get here again? Mm-hmm. It may be a good way to help out a recession. Yeah. So they say, you know what, we're going to drop that qualifying rate for new home oh, buyers. there you go, yeah. So yeah. maybe a sweetener. Stimulus, yeah. mm-hmm. It's kind of like lowering interest rates without actually lowering interest you, rates. Exactly. Yeah, you're <laughs> yeah. right. It is. Yeah. It's like two different economies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It is. It's a fake 2%. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, you know, credit unions don't fall under these rules, although most are going through the same process. So even on their website, I checked this week, they still have on their website, they have to qualify. But there is some, so some mortgage brokers are actually going through lenders that don't have to use those qualifiers, that stress test. Mm -hmm. And of course, if you, there's also a turn to, as we talked about this week, about private lenders. And people are going to private lenders because they have no choice. There's always been that avenue for a lot of people because they say are self-employed, didn't work long enough, they had a bad credit history, whatever the case is, and they had to get their you know feet back on the ground and, mm-hmm. and get running again. If you are going to a private lender, it's usually quite a bit more. Mm-hmm. It could be seven to 9%. And if that's the case and you need to go that route, go for it, but make sure you can get out of it as quick as you can mm-hmm. so right. that you can go to a conventional lender. Right. Okay, so yeah, there's a... The whole debt thing is really turned upside down in the last year. And yeah. we're starting to notice that already with, you know, housing in general. Mm-hmm. And I know already this past week, they talked about Vancouver prices have actually started to come down in all segments, even the condo segment now. Yeah. And demand sales are way down. And we're starting to see that evening out of sales and prices perhaps a bit too on the GTA area. Yeah. Now, there was, a, there was some information uh, this week too about Montreal now being the hottest market. Hmm. And in fact, sales volumes are up 11% in Montreal. And you can understand why, because I think the median condo price is around 260,000. Yeah, they've been in a slump for a while. And the average uh, individual home is around 360,000. So there's obviously value. People are seeing that and saying, wait a minute, this will always be there. When you think of the prices though, the average price of a house in the average city in Canada and Montreal is sitting at that, that's unbelievable. I know. When you think of you know, I mean, oh, this for is world-class city. Exactly. Yeah. Not what it used to be. No, it's, it's totally changed though. Yeah. No, it's, it's interesting how the debt side has changed, but again, whether it's debt, assets, cash flow, it's all part of our financial plan. And again, mm-hmm. IG private wealth is all, and, and that's our, our, you know, private wealth management is our, is our new name, our new mm-hmm. brand. And again, it encompasses all that. And that's really what 
you know, the change in our name from Investors Group to IG Private Wealth is to make sure people understand that it is putting the pieces together. Mm-hmm. And it takes all sorts of aspects of your, of your situation. Next area I'd like to discuss, though, is lots of news about longevity. People are living longer. In fact, living to the hundred. Yeah. I've been doing all my plans to ninety-five. Maybe it's not. A, maybe it's not enough. Yeah. And is that good or bad news? And it's interesting. They on the two thousand eleven cons, um, census, they looked at males' average age was about eighty. Average. There's mm-hmm. a lot of people living over eighty, and females about eighty-four. Mm-hmm. So that's the average life expectancy based on the the two thousand eleven consensus. And you look at that, the number of centurions, the people living to a hundred plus between 2006 and 2011 have increased by 26%. Yeah, fastest now, growing segment. It's not a big segment to begin no, with. No, right, right. And what that meant is there was, it went up to 5,825 people that are now over 100 years old. How many? 5,000. 5,825 right. people. And that's just in Hamilton. <laughs> no, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> but the projection is That's really across the country, yeah. correct? Uh, yes, that's yeah, great across, across Canada, country. yeah. Um, the, con- the projection is that there'll be 80,000 centurions in year 2061. Now, I worked this out, Scott. Wow. That means we're that 98. Us? We're 98. Oh, we're not there yet. We're not there yet. Okay. Two more years, we can join that crowd. And you're 62, baby. <laughs> will there be any? Well, Andy, we'll so. Yeah. I'm a 62, baby. So, yeah, you'd be 99, Andy. Yeah. Oh, 99. You're 69. I'm 63. Well I'm the baby here. I thought you're 63 also. So. Yeah. No. so, we're almost there. We'd have to wait for the next uh, census to so go, you're come a out. Gretzky. Okay. I'm a Gretzky, yeah. Mm. yeah I'll be ni- uh, 99. But, so, you know, but there's always that old adage back at one time is, you know, make sure once you get into retirement, you got to get your investment safer, you right. know? And they even had a rule. You took your age- um, from 100, and that's how much you should have in fixed income. So if you're 65, you should have 65% of fixed income, GICs. If you were 75, you should have 75% in fixed income. Well, if you're going to live another 25 more years, mm. should you really have that much in fixed income? Um, because really, inflation to me is one of the biggest risks. Yeah. If you're going to live a long time, inflation becomes the biggest risk. And I worked out even at 3% inflation, which is, you know, approximately, it's a little higher than what it is now, but it's kind of a good average over the last hundred years. If you say $100 of groceries now would be $242 in 30 years from now. Mm. So it's 2.4 times. So if you had a $1,000 month rent payment, that's $2,420 per month in rent. Mm. If your property taxes are 10 grand a month, now it's 24,000 a year in property taxes. So just try to put that in perspective. You have to have investments that match or keep up with inflation. Yeah. And so at the end of the day, there's really four major areas of risk. And the one everybody talks about is capital risk. And that's the prices going up and down. We've had a lot of volatility in the stock markets in October. Mm-hmm. So last month, there was plenty of volatility. Markets were all over the map, particularly down. We always talk about volatility as the way down, but that's it, it does, up is also volatility. And you know they go down ten percent, but that's very short term. So you, if you if if you're worried about using that money to buy a car by the end of the year, you shouldn't probably be in equities. Yeah. Okay, GICs or term deposits would be good, but capital risk is definitely um, where equities would play there. Interest rate risk: if interest rates rise, certain investments go down in value. Long-term bonds, REITs, real estate investment trusts go down. Preferred shares go down. Dividend areas go down. And we've been seeing that in the last year where anything that pays a dividend, the banks, um, the big 
um, Trans Canada Pipeline, all the ones that pay dividends, the, the price per shares have dropped this year because of interest rates rising. Mm-hmm. Okay, and REITs have also done the same. Tax risk. Well, anything that has a high amount of tax, such as um, GICs or anything that pays interest, that's a tax risk. So if you made, say, 4% in your GIC and you're in a 50% tax bracket, now you're only down to 2 Yeah. If inflation is 3%, you've lost to inflation because of the tax. And also, there's also the old age security clawback, which is also a, a kind of a tax risk. Because once you get over that 75000 threshold, you're losing 15 cents on the dollar in terms of how much old age security you're going to get. Right. Okay. And finally, the one we just talked about was inflation risk. And GICs and are the worst to protect against inflation. Hmm. They're good at preserving capital. They don't have much volatility, but they're horrendous for the risk of longevity because they would not keep up. Yeah. So if that $100,000 um, GIC you have now, you'd need $240,000 of GICs in 30 years yeah. to have the same amount of impact in terms of your lifestyle. Or what happens? Your lifestyle has to drop. So it becomes a bit of a double-edged sword. So really what happens is you got to say, okay, how am I going to, what should I do in terms of protecting guns longevity? And one is, what about, what about CPP? That's indexed, mm-hmm. okay? So you don't have to worry about that. And I know Andy and I have talked about Canada Pension Plan a lot. Right now, if you were getting 1000 a month if you weighed to 65, you would only get 640 a month if you took it at 60. And you would get 1420 a month if you waited till 70. Mm-hmm. But those are also indexed. Mm-hmm. So as you're waiting for 70 to happen, by the time you got to 70, just f- through inflation, it would be $1,907 per month mm-hmm. because everything would get indexed. Well, 95, perfect example, your CPP, if you took it early, you'd end up, your 640 would have grown to 1,800 a month. So that's pretty good. Mm-hmm. It almost tripled. But if you wait to 65, your 1,000 a month would be up to 2,800 a month because of inflation. So it is indexed. And again, if you wait to 70, your 1,400 a month would have grown to 3,400 a month. Mm. That is a fantastic hedge against, uh, against inflation. And this is where having a defined and indexed pension is really what it is. So you really should be talking to your planner. What is the optimal age you should be pulling this money out? Should you wait to 70? Well, maybe maybe not you. Maybe your spouse should. Uh, females generally live longer. Maybe you'll have your wife um, wait till 70 to collect the CPP. And the husband collect it, say, 65. Mm-hmm. You know, they hedge your bets a bit. So there's a, one other risk. And that fifth risk would be overspending. And uh, as Andy mentioned in the last segment, there's a lot of seniors getting uh, mortgages right now between the ages of 75 and 90 years old. They're going back and getting mortgaged again. Wow. And that's because they overspent. Yeah. They lived too well and they realized, whoops, I didn't know I was going to live so long. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, On the other hand, I would say just as many are doing the opposite. They're under living. Mm -hmm. And that to me is really like penalizing your lifestyle. Mm-hmm. You're, you're so worried about running out of money mm-hmm. that I'm not going to take those trips right now. I'm not going to do that hike through the Andes. I'm not going to yeah. do those things mm-hmm. that I like to do because I'm conserving my money when I'm in the old age home. Mm-hmm. Well, then what ends up happening is you, you just can't spend it. Yeah. You leave too much. And it's actually interesting. There's this thing called the disability-free lifestyle. And it's around age 70. Even though people are living longer, their mobility still shuts down at about age 70 yeah. on average. Mm-hmm. So they're not able to go skiing. 
that many. You don't see a whole lot of skiers after the age of 70. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, you may not be able to do the hiking that you wanted. There's certain things you wouldn't be able to do. So why not in those first years of retirement, spend more, mm-hmm. knowing you're going to back it off. And I finished just doing a plan for a client and we had spending from 65 to 70 for travel, 70 to 75 for travel and 75 and on for travel. And it basically went from whatever it was to about half yeah. by the time they got over the 75 mark mm-hmm. because they expect they would have got it all out of their system. And I talked to a client just last week again, and I, you know, they've gone from tr- taking trips every year saying, ah, it's not even worth the hassle. I'd rather hang out with the grandkids. Well, yeah. it's amazing what 10 years makes. Change they were, of focus, yeah. They were great travelers. They love traveling. Yeah. Now that's the airports and yeah. security and you know what? I'm enjoying my grandkids. It's just your priorities change. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> you really what you need to do is there's those three areas of a person's um, kind of retirement. And those first years, as uh, and I love to Andy coined this quite a while, was the go-go years. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and that's where you're... T- traveling like crazy is the honeymoon stage of retirement Mm -hmm. you're hiking you're skiing you're golfing you're doing all these things well you may it costs more yeah okay then it's the go slow years to me that would be like i got my place in florida i go down for five months and hang out down there it's warm Mm -hmm. or arizona no no humidity there it's good for my arthritis Mm -hmm. and then there's those no-go years and the person i spoke to this past week they're in the no-go years now no trips at all. Mm-hmm. They might, they've considered a cruise because that's yeah. eh, not so bad. You can, don't have to do that much. Yeah. But that really, their, their priorities changed a lot. So it, it's, it really comes down to your situation. And so there's a few rules of, and really comes down, you really should have a financial plan mm-hmm. first and foremost. So I don't like rules of thumb that much, but there is this rule of 20. So if you have, for every $20 you have, it's $1 of inflation adjusted income. So if you had 500,000, that would give you 25,000 to spend. Mm-hmm. Now that's a 65 year old and he should not run out according to this rule of thumb. I'm somewhat skeptical. I might look at the, say the rule 25 more so that if you had for every $25, you get $1 of income. Mm-hmm. And that would mean if you have $500,000, you could take out 20,000 a year and index it every year with inflation right. and it should last the rest of your life. And that will get you through the go-go years, the go-slow years, and the no-go years. Uh, which one of those times do I buy the scooter? <laughs> that, <laughs> is, that, is that the no-go I'm or gonna, the go? Or? I'm guessing, depending on how slow it is, maybe the no-slow <laughs> go, the go-slow <laughs> go years. Depends if it's a five-speed yeah. or a three-speed. <laughs> That's right. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now and leave a message. They'll return your call at 905-529-7165. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call them now and leave a message. They'll return your call at 905-529-7165. Check out the website as well at andyanddon.com. You can listen to old shows there as well. Uh, you can ask a question via the listener inquiry button uh, that way, or of course, leave a message. All right, talking about go go, slow go, and no go. Is That's this still right. is this still about finance? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> you got the go go, the pogo stick. I'm wondering what's go. Where are we going here? 
Um, and as Don was talking in that last segment, it just reminded me of a couple of scenarios where I had seen that evolution going through mm-hmm. and how the, pr- the priorities change as we age. And and this couple had been, um, uh, had retired, they lived in Oakville, and they decided, you know what, we're going to buy a place down south. So they actually bought a place in Mexico and sold the house in Oakville and bought a place up north. So mm. cottage in the summer, yeah. place in the winter. And uh, so they were in their late six, uh, the early 70s at the time. So roll the clock forward, they're now um, 84, so it's been about 14, 15 years. Mm. And they've actually just bought a condo in Oakville. Hmm. And oh, wow. the rationale, what happened was that when they first moved to Mexico, they, um, they had a couple of friends that were also in the same mindset mm-hmm. and decided to do the same thing, winter right. in Mexico. Um, healthcare was always in the back of their mind, you know, as we age, healthcare might become more and more important to us mm-hmm. in terms of accessing it. Very good and very accessible healthcare in Mexico, some cost associated with it, mm-hmm. but they still maintained their Ontario residency and were certain they could come back if they needed to access OHIP as well. Right. But um, the, the group of people that they went with had gone through the same thing. They went through the go-go, slow-go and no-go. And what had happened was out of about a dozen couples, already about eight of them have left. Yeah. Hmm. So yeah, some of them, that. some of them because <clears throat> mobility now, they don't want to travel anymore. Some of them have passed away. Some of them, you know, it's, as I say, illness or something has caused them now. They're staying back in Ontario. And so now they're down to the sort of the last two standing or yeah. last three standing. Yeah. And then, you know what? The writing's on the wall. It's not as fun to be there anymore. Yeah, it's different, yeah. And so <clears throat> they've said, you know what? We better retrench and have an, op- an option to be able to come back to Oakville because I can see there's an end date to this mm-hmm. Mexico thing. And so that was one example of the transition and, and, Part of the planning with all that is, is, is again, as Don said, having a financial plan that addresses those changes mm-hmm. and the opportunity to be able to do that. And the second thing was, and having the money available to be able to buy that condo back here in Oakville is a part, has to be part of the plan too. Where's yeah. that money going to come from? And the second one, which was another client of mine who I spoke with this week, and as you were talking about, you know, I'm, she was 78 now, she's on her own. And, uh, she was saying, you know, should I be more conservative? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm pretty old now, right? And, you know, and I, I, I feel that that whole argument, you know, the older you get, the more conservative your money should be, is really gone out the window. Mm. And really what it comes down to is what will you do and what are your needs in terms of your capital and the money that you've saved? Bottom line, let's say your portfolio went down by 20%. So if you had a million dollars, that's a $200,000 drop in your portfolio. What are you going to do at that point? Are you going to sell mm. in panic or will you ride through it? And in her case, she's ridden through many of these volatility, periods of volatility. And the second thing that where people are sort of forced is if they need the money. So either one, you sell because of a panic or number two, you need the money and you have to sell. Mm-hmm. And so um, the truth was, is that she actually has what I would call four pots of money. So if you imagine a million dollars, sort of one pot is aggressive 
and that could easily drop by 20%. But she also has another pot of money, which would be conservative. So if she needed to pull $50,000 from someplace, we have a plan in place that there's always a spot that we can get access to a lump sum of capital that would not require her to sell something at a loss or sell mm. something when it's down. And that's peace of mind as well. Now that when you, but if it was a big scenario where let's say she needed 400,000 to buy another condo, well, we would adjust the plan to accommodate that and try and eliminate any of market volatility in that piece of money. So we know that life changes. There's those three stages, the go, go, slow, go, and no go, and your needs are going to change along the way as well. So, um, and I think the other thing too is, is trying to get people to spend because we were actually going through yes. a little, the 78 year old, we were going through a shopping list and I said, well, uh, do you have somebody looking after your lawn? Well, yeah, but they don't, you know, they don't do a great job. Do you have somebody helping you clean your home? Well, no, I guess I could do that. She goes to the gym. Have you ever thought about a personal trainer to mm. improve in terms of your outcomes or making sure you're not doing anything that might hurt? Oh, yeah, I guess I could do that. She said, oh, you know what? My vacuum is about is in for repair. I go, who repairs a vacuum? <laughs> 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 you well, almost anything or these days. We were talking about old Electrolux vacuum, mm. and uh, I remember what those looked like. It can't look like a, a wiener dog with, yeah, a, with, a, yeah. with a hose attached to it. And uh, But, you know, you could buy a new Dyson. It'll probably last you the rest of your life mm-hmm. and it'll be a great vacuum. Uh, so it's what she was writing all of these down. <laughs> it's a whole list of things to do. But, you know, it's just a different type of mindset because the whole thing was not to waste money. That's yeah. true. Make I agree. things last as long as you can. Men's socks. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. You know, you <laughs> And that's probably things. how they got to where they are. And, and that's yeah. how they have money. So mm-hmm. then when they did have a, a good income, they didn't waste it. And mm-hmm. then it's the other thing, switching that mind to say, okay, I'm going to actually spend money and have fun. Yeah. Well, I got to still think about the future. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to get through, you know, we don't know how long our future is. And it's, yeah. and again, even when you're 80, these people that are 80, I, I've talked to people 10 years ago who are 75 and they said, well, I'm, I may not be around next time we see it on next year. And now here they're 85. Yeah. You said that for 10 years now, yeah. okay? And that's what, that's people are afraid to spend. And so when you're in that go-go period from let's say 60, 65 to 70, to actually tell people to spend more money during that time period, the first thing they think of, I'm going to run out, Yeah. right? Yeah. Not recognizing that their spending will trail off and that there's a plan in place to be able to make sure it lasts their lifetime. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call now. Leave a message. They'll return your call at 905-529-7165 and check out the website at andyanddon.com. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call them now and leave a message at 905-529-7165 and check out their website at andyanddon.com. That's Andy Andy and Don, all one word, dot com. Talking about diversification. Yes, and, and diversification has come back to the forefront again. It's always, it always should be part of your plan. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting, when one area starts doing a lot better than another area, uh, people start forgetting about diversifying. Oh, you know what? The US, greedy. Yeah, I'll make more money leaving it right where it is. So I, why would I want to get outside, say, the US? Or why would I want to get anything but tech stocks? That's the best place to have your money. And they get into a sector or under-diversified. But boy, when volatility happens, oh, have a diversified portfolio. All comes back into play. And it always should have been because you're always going to get burned. Um, proper diversification 
as all, and I know one person said it to me, is that you'll never make a killing, but you'll never get killed. Yeah. And that makes so much sense to me because, you know, people really hate to lose money mm-hmm. a lot more than they like to make money, the most part. Mm. And it's interesting. And, and again, we've just gone through the uh, midterm elections and, you know, other elections have happened and volatility and what's going to happen with the stock markets. It's interesting, a little factoid, the last time uh, during a midterm U.S. election, the market was actually down a, a year later. Mm-hmm. Guess when that was? Uh after the Obama years. Oh, okay. That's 1946. Okay. <laughs> 1946. <laughs> it's, it's... The first Obama. Yeah, yeah. A long time. Yeah. And, and that's just to show how little the elections have to do, because everybody likes to talk about the elections. What's it going to do with the stock market? Democrats get in. Republicans get in. It's Often they say Republicans are better for the stock market. You know, at the end of the day, it comes by profits. Certainly when they lower taxes, mm-hmm. that's an impetus for the economy. Lower interest rate, that helps the economy. Any government that does those things will help the stock markets, okay? Regardless of what color they're wearing in the States, or in our case, (coughs) generally liberal and conservatives. Mm -hmm. So diversification, and and people say, okay, well, so I get the question occasionally, so what's the average investor doing right now? And I'm thinking, okay, the average investor is a failed investor. They're not doing a good job. That's why you have these Dalbar reports that show that the average investor's return is a lot less than what the investment's actually done. So if, and what I mean by that, let's say the average mutual fund in the US has averaged 9% a year for 20 years, the average investor has averaged about four to 5%. So I says, how can that be? It's because they're not um, diversified, they're not rebalancing. And when you talk about rebalancing, is this rebalancing? Selling the one that's doing lousy and buying the winner. No. Right. And that's what the average person does. They say, oh, I want to get out of that dog. Mm. And I want to get into these ones because these are way better. And what I look at, I said, okay, are they way better? Or have they been way better? Well, I said, look at they're going up. No, no. Are they going up or did they go up? Mm-hmm. It's a big difference because we don't know what they're going to continue to do. Yeah. But everybody likes to keep adding the dots up in the direction that they've been going. So really what rebalancing is, is doing the exact opposite of what we've said, is selling the winner mm-hmm. and buying some of the underperforming areas. And right now that would have been selling the US and buying say emerging markets, Canada, buying mm-hmm. more Canadian investments. That would be diversifying your equity side. So equity diversification that would be the stock part of your portfolio. There's different types of styles. So you have a growth style and a value style. Mm-hmm. Um, growth has really been the Apple, the Fang stocks, the Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Google, Netflix. Netflix. Those ones there, they've been going like fantastic this year. That's the growth style. Value stocks have actually been underperforming growth by a long shot, but this isn't new. They've been doing that all the time. Sometimes value is the popular one and growth's out of vogue. And that's why you diversify, you get both. Um, sectors, you, you get into sectors t- such as just large cap investors, uh, large cap stocks versus small cap stocks. Geographic should have Canadian, US, international emerging markets. Okay, should have all of them. Well, I don't know. But again, how much you should have in each one. I would not recommend putting you know, 10% or 20% of your portfolio in emerging markets. Mm-hmm. Maybe five to seven might be okay but you don't want to go too high in that area. It's, it's a very risky area. At the same token, Canada, international, US, they're all very, very good markets. Um, really help spread the risk is really what comes down because at the end of the day, 
even if they average the same, people don't like volatility. So let's say investments average 10%. It doesn't matter if you've got growth, value, US, Canadian, they all average the same over 20 years. Then really, at the, in, this, in the nutshell, you should just buy one because the, the return is going to be 10%. That's it. But we know humans do not like volatility. So by adding these other sectors and other types of investments and geographically and everything else, you won't get as much volatility. Mm -hmm. So I, I took a look at two funds that we have, and one's a global fund and one's a global real estate fund. And I looked at them in the last 10 years, and they both averaged identical returns, 10% in the last nine years. The global fund's highest year was in 2013. It did 29%. Interesting enough, our global real estate fund only did 4.4 that year. So you're saying, wow, what a lousy fund that was. I wish I'd had all in global fund. Well, the interesting thing is, is the global real estate fund, the following year did 29%, hmm. where the global fund only did 10%. So they're all, they're going to have different um, times when one's popular, one's not as popular. At the end of the day, you end up with far less volatility. And that's what diversification is all about, is reducing volatility, even though the return may be the same. Mm -hmm. Okay? So really, when, when, a, when a client says to me, I said, you know what, we're really, should be, we're really not in the growth sector. And you know, I, I've talked to people, and they're making a ton of money in weed stock and this and whatever it is. And I really look at it as a badge of honor. I think, hey, you're welcome. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you shouldn't be in that one sector. You should be diversified. It's not fun. But you know what is fun? Making money slowly without the volatility. Good point. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox have been here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call them now and leave a message at 905-529-7165 and take a peek at the website andyanddon.com. There you can listen to old archive shows and ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Thank you, gentlemen. Have a great week. Thank, Thank you, Scott. Scott.